the Lord's blessing to you. Uh, welcome to this service, and I'm so glad to be a part of it with you. Um, as you can see, I'm. you can see me and you can hear my words, but uh, what I'm going to do is I have a PowerPoint, and I hope it's not too distracting for you. But as we're going along here, um, I'm going to have a PowerPoint presentation, and I will be minimized on the screen, just like this, as you can see. And as you can see by my sermon title, it's entitled Mind and Courage for Christ. There are two things that I drew from this passage, and two things I think vitally that the church in general needs to embrace. And as I am fixing my little window here, our scripture passage today is found in Acts 17. So I would encourage you to take a few moments to find your Bibles and go to Acts 17. And it's going to be Acts 17, 13 to 34. It's quite a lengthy chunk of scripture, but we're only going to stop and drill down at certain points. So once again, I have a PowerPoint here, and just to not keep you from being lost in a sea of information, you can see me down here, and you can see the information on the screen. Just focus on what's in front of you in the center of the screen. Feel free to read it. It might be an image. It might be a text. Um, it might be a slide of some kind. Um, but focus on that first, and if you can, Gather that information and then feel free to look around uh, the screens and the slides that I'll have. I think that's best to help keep you organized in your mind so we don't get lost in the same information, and I certainly don't want to do that. So our sermon title this morning is Mind and Courage for Christ, how Paul's apologetic approach in Athens can help reinforce the sharing of the gospel. So I hope you're turning to your passage. That's Acts 17, 13 to 34, and have that open and ready. I will also have, every time we're mentioning scripture, I will have it on the screen. So if you don't have your Bible with you, don't worry about it. I do want to open up by talking about apologetics. And what does that mean, Paul's apologetic approach? The best text in the New Testament that serves as a launching point or an understanding of what that means comes from Peter. And in Peter, 1 Peter 3.15a says this, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I'm gonna say that one more time. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is a command. Peter's instructing the church to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the reason for the hope that you have. The word reason is apologia. And that is the defense in a court of law, building your own case. So with that said, church, it's 2020, and there are a lot of things going on in our culture and our world, COVID-19, all kinds of political and cultural issues that are happening. 
and we need to be aware of them, be informed about them, so we can best launch and share the gospel with people effectively. So we need to clear the table, in other words. We need fresh eyes, and this is a good thing, because I'm going to mention a few things about Paul, what he does and what he doesn't do in his sermon, and we need to be aware of them as well. We need to rely upon God in today's times, the resources for sharing our faith and apologetics and evangelism are abundant. And if we don't know them, we can get involved with them. And I would be glad to help you with that. And God wants us to have a robust mind. And certainly Paul in many places doesn't want us to have an infantile mind or a mind that's not informed. So moving on then to our scripture reading, uh, starting at Acts 17, Verses 13. I'm going to have slides that are in about four or five different chunks. So you can follow along with me if you like. Ready? Okay, here we go. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him, that is Paul, as soon as possible. Acts 17, 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting place of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Luke's comment here, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Then Paul stood up, sorry, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looking carefully at, every, at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times and times set for them, and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him, and find him, 
though he is not far from each one of us. Quote, for in him we live and move and have our being, unquote. As some of your own poets have said, quote, we are his offspring, unquote. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. May the Lord bless you, church, as we read his words today. Stanley Park, welcome to Athens. It's certainly on my list of travel locations. I'm sure Wayne and Janet have been there probably three or four times, but it's certainly on my list. You can just look and see the stunning sights, the architecture, the beauty, and smell the air taken in the culture. All really neat stuff. 2,000 years ago, these structures, these buildings, as wonderful as they are and beautiful as they are, were completely saturated and imbued with religious significance. To get our context here leading up to where we get to Athens, Paul has been ushered out of Berea, out of safety concerns, and boards the ship to Athens. I want to make a, a, a comment here about Paul. I don't think you ever see in the New Testament or in Acts where Paul is necessarily afraid for his life or starts running. Really, it's only two things. The Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus prevents him from going to such and such a place or doing something, or out of respect for those who love him, is that Paul concedes out of respect for love and those who love him to kind of get in somewhere safely. In Athens, Paul is alone, it seems, yet he wastes no time in preaching. He's not just in the marketplace trying to find a nice rug. Paul is on a mission by the Lord Jesus himself. And in our context here, um, to get a date of when this happened, we're reasonably confident that this happened. Paul was in Athens in AD 50. Why is this? Well, if you have your Bibles open, turn over to the next chapter or the next page, wherever your, your Bible is. Acts 18, verse 12, there's an incidental detail here where the proconsul of Achaia was Gallio. And these proconsuls were only proconsuls for one year. This is confirmed not only in other literary accounts, but also in archaeology. This inscription here is, is housed at the Delphi Museum in Greece. And that's a way to date that if Paul was going to Corinth, in 5152, and he was in Athens before, it can be reasonably certain that he 
was in Athens at AD 50. Paul's got some challenges within his own worldview in the first century context. Roman religion, it's important that you practice Roman religion wherever you are. It's not even so much about beliefs. You practiced religion in every facet of life. Why? Because there was a God for every facet of life. It was never about the afterlife. It was about what God could provide for the gods could provide for you in this life right now. Gods for fertility, gods for travel, gods for love, gods for the hunt, gods for prosperity. You name it. There was a God for everything and you did and you were a part of that. And the one exception within the ancient world was specifically Jewish monotheism. They worshipped one creator God. And so it seemed odd to the pagans. It's almost like saying, uh, how many friends do you have? Well, I've got one friend. That just sounded odd to their ears. Anyway, moving on. That's a challenge for Paul. Hellenism. Even though the, the Roman world dominated, it was Greek philosophy, Greek culture, and the literature and the language that dominated at this time, as we know, the New Testament was written specifically in Greek to reach the widest readership. And of course, in the Roman Empire, with the emperors employing cult worship and emperor worship, that was also dangerous for Christians because Caesar isn't God. Jesus is God. Also for Paul, the Messiah had come. He was once an enemy of the faith. It's like, no way, I'm stamping this out until Christ appeared to him and gave him a mission. Now he's a part of the community of Christ. His identity is found in Christ alone, and he wants to build God's family because that's exactly what God wants. His commission is to preach, is to defend and proclaim Jesus and the resurrection to the Gentiles. Paul was very able to, to do this, as we see about throughout his sermons and actions in the book of Acts, to be able to contextualize the gospel and adapt for Jew and Gentile alike. Incidental comment there, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 27, Paul declared himself a slave for everyone so that he might win some. A good model to have for us. So there's a lot in this speech. I've had to winnow down quite a few things. Um, and some of it is just not manageable. And some of it just isn't appropriate. It's appropriate for gray matters, having our apologetics meeting. So three key points in Paul's speech is Paul, well, first of all, is very courageous. And he's constantly at work. He's constantly doing the work of the Lord. The second thing is Paul is adaptive to his audiences. With the Jews, he uses the scriptures. And he's trying to show more often than not that the, not only that the Messiah, Jesus, had come, but the Messiah had to suffer. In some ways, they didn't get the whole suffering Messiah thing. And the third thing is that Paul shares the good news of the gospel, Jesus and the resurrection. And I want to start off by using a quote from a book that was very influential and helpful for me in my preparation and that's philosopher Paul Copan and Kenneth Litwack's book, The Gospel in the Marketplace of Ideas. And it's specifically about Paul's um, episode in Athens. Here's what they say. This is why studying Paul's speech in Athens 
serves as a model for Christians. We must be aware of the leading, influential ideas that shape culture so that we can insightfully and winsomely engage them with the power, the beauty, and the truth of the gospel. Paul was not ignorant of those dominant ideas in his day, and we shouldn't be either. Now, starting with our texts, we're going to pick up where Paul arrives in Athens. And I want to do two things here with Acts 17, verse 16 and 22. I want you to look at both of them. Notice Paul, as soon as he arrives in the city, just sees it's full of idols and pagan worship. This is very important because we know from Paul's letters, we know what he thinks of pagan idolatry. They're not sacrificing to other gods, definitely small g, but their sacrifices are to demons. So for him, he must have been just offended and disgusted. Then when Paul starts his speech, he kind of holds back, even though he's deeply offended, just being there in one sense. Paul does not let on how offended it is. Instead, his opening line, he turns it into a compliment to the Athenians. How religious you are. Paul holds back his punches for the greater good. That's something to take note of. If we're going to reach people with the gospel, we're going to get offended. We're not going to like hearing certain things that come our way and are even directed at us. But we must press on and build a bridge because it's worth it. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. There's, uh, there's an old joke that I discovered that Paul found out two things or two places whenever he went to a new city. First, where's the synagogue? Because first he's going to reason with the Jews. And the second is the jail because he's going to start out in the first one and he's going to end up most likely in the second one. And that certainly happens a lot for Paul. Paul, without a doubt, with the Jews, used the scriptures and was pointing to them to Messiah had come. He had that point of contact. That was their worldview, and they accepted biblical authority. So for after leaving the synagogue, he then starts to go right into the marketplace. I love this. Day by day, with those who happen to be there. What does that really mean? Paul speaks with anyone, anywhere, at any time. Verse 18 a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked that seemed to be, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. A couple of notes here about the dominant view, or views, you should say, in Athens at this time. It's Epicureanism and Stoicism couple of points here to understand. The Epicureans were materialists. Everything, everything is only made of atoms. It's a collision of atoms. And that matter is eternal and uncreated. It's just there. There's really no divine purpose for life. There's certainly no bodily resurrection. So when they hear Paul speaking, they don't uh, believe in that. Because there's no future spirit existence after you die. 
Essentially, they're hedonists. They're seeking pleasure while they want to minimize pain. There's no worry about judgment because there's no afterlife. If there's no afterlife, no judgment. Certainly, atheists could have been well at home with Epicureanism. It was mostly about fun, not virtue. And if we could caricature them in kind of a pithy saying or a slogan, it would be, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we have the Stoic, Stoicism, where God exists, but he is the cosmic reason or divine logos in the universe. But essentially, they were pantheists. What does that mean, pantheists? Everything is God, and God is everything. It's literally all divine. And there's a divine spark in each one of us. And at death, it returns to the ultimate divine. Reason is the best path to understand life and God, meaning the mind. You don't go out there and you look for evidence and try to see if God exists or anything of that nature. You found understanding through your own reasoning processes. It's not through nature or God or other realities. And if we could characterize them in a saying or a slogan, life is hard, and then you die. So there you go. These are these two dominant views that are happening in, in Athens right now. The incidental comment, they call Paul a babbler. When I was researching all of this for, this was a jewel. The Greek image of the word babbler is a bird in a gutter picking up scraps. So what that means for us is a person who required mere scraps of learning. He's doing what he can with the little that he does have. Interesting. Then they took him, verse 19 and 20, to, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Sounds pretty legit, pretty neat. You are bringing strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. It sounds pretty honest and inviting, but certainly there's a bit of condescension here. They're very learned men. They know what's going on, so they don't feel threatened necessarily by Paul and what he's bringing. And when I started to absorb this part, I started to think of the movie Dinner for Schmucks. In one sense, you've got in this movie, Dinner for Schmucks, about 10 years ago, you have these elite corporate guys in this contest to bring out the oddest, strangest person out to dinner. Each one would win, and whoever was the weirdest, the strangest, would get a prize. So in one sense, they want to hear what he has to say, and they will give him free reign to say what he wants to say. But they're saying, really, let's listen to this babbler of foreign divinities. Let's give him a hearing. They're not to worry about it. Why? Because I'm so much better than you. Verse 23, Paul finds his point of contact now where he can launch into the gospel message, launch into a preaching message about monotheism, the one true God. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found even an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And not only from literature, but we have unearthed, not me, but they have unearthed an altar that was found in Pal at Palatine Hill in Rome, 
uh, over a hundred years ago. And in Greek, the inscription would have been agnostos theos. And the reason why they had these altars was basically just to hedge their bets in a sense, or to be say, we don't want to miss any deity out there. It's not because they were so pious, because they feared if they offended any of the gods, they could come to this spot and say, hey, we did this just in case we missed out on you. Interesting. Paul is essentially saying here, the gods you think you know, yeah, they don't control anything. It's the God you don't know. He's the one who runs everything. He runs the show, and I'm going to tell you all about him. Paul then launches now into Jewish monotheism at the same time, broadsiding the Stoics and the Epicureans. The God who made the world and everything in it is the, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For one, from one man, he has made every nation of men so that it might inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, though he is not far from each one of us. For we live, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul uses their own Greek sources to undermine their beliefs and to build off his and make his own case. The, con the last comment we know for sure, we are his offspring, is from Aratus, who was from Tarsus. And Tarsus was arguably the intellectual hub of the day. You had Athens, at this point, lost a lot of its former glory. You have Alexandria in Egypt was a huge intellectual learning center, and Tarsus. Who else is from Tarsus? Paul was. Maybe he's not quite the babbler that he thought he was. Verse 29 and 30. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent, change your thinking, and listen to what I'm saying. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul undercuts the Stoics and the Epicureans in their materialism and their pantheism. And then he sends a full frontal attack of Jewish monotheism with the resurrection as his mic drop. Paul uses their own sources to support his case and undermine their own beliefs. William Lane Craig, Craig in his lecture on this um, time of Paul in Athens says it really nicely. Paul takes a last shot at pagan idol worship by saying, since we are created by God, Obviously, God cannot be something created by us. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, verses 32 and 34 and following, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you about you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, 
a few men became followers of Paul and believed. That's incredible. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. I should mention, I, I didn't mention before, the Areopagus was a very elite and essential gathering of aristocrats and philosophers of the city. Men who got thing do, things done within the city that, that was civil. Also, they were close in contact with those people who were very influential. Also, a woman named Damaris and a number of others. At the mentioning of the raising of the dead, unfortunately, it was just too much for them. In the ancient world, everyone knew once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. You can maybe try and contact the dead, maybe be successful, but there's no going back. Paul's efforts were certainly not without victories. He wins an actual member of the Areopagus and others. Which brings us to today. Our Athens, 2020. What are the kind of things that we're engaged with? We're engaged with postmodernism and relativism. The slogan would be, that's true for you, your Christian faith and whatever it is you believe, but it's not true for me. Also, that's only your perspective about that, not my perspective. Another thing is emotivism. Life or feelings or emotions is central, and people are grounded in this, how they subjectively feel. And unfortunately, the church has really hook, line, and sinkered into this emotivism, where it becomes this subjective experience only and not based on truth. Religious pluralism and syncretism. There are different paths to God. Jesus, whether you like him or not, was not politically correct. He believed that he was God's revelation, and if he doesn't go to the cross, the fate of the world will depend upon what he does. Incredible. Syncretism. Pick and choose your own religion. That's a lot of New Age stuff. You can grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, I even like some of this Christianity stuff. I'll take that and work with it how I like and kind of leave the rest. And finally, naturalism and scientism. Naturalism basically means the physical world is all there is, kind of like the Epicureans. And scientism. Oh, sorry, naturalism. There is no supernatural realities. The physical is all that exists. And scientism. Science, scientism basically is only hard sciences get you to the truth. It's a lot of things to be engaged with in our culture that are very challenging if we're not aware of them. We encounter these things in school, in academia, not just our young people, uh, but also in the public square for us. We have daily conversations with everyone who buy in and believe a lot of these things. Therefore, we must be well grounded in our faith and astute observers of our culture. Church, your devotions are very, very vital, but they're not Bible study and they're not Christian doctrine learning. And I think we need to pick up on those. So we can think carefully about these matters and to be better articulate with the gospel. Paul Copan writes this. In a post-Christian age, to quote the scriptures as an authoritative holy book in public settings, be careful with what I'm saying here, in public settings 
can be counterproductive. To say the Bible says, or thus saith the Lord, is, in a, is appropriate in Christian context setting. But this approach will often fail to connect with outsiders to the church. Paul certainly was aware of that. And we need to be aware of that as well, especially how our culture is today, which is very post and very anti-Christian. We can get their church. So then comes the question, why share my faith? Why would I, I risk uh, safety or, or being defamed? God's in control, right? This kind of annoys me very much so. And I say that because most of my walk was completely blissfully ignorant in my faith and that there were actually good reasons to believe and there was good solid learning. Church, God wants to be known and he wants to use you. Do you think the Great Commission really should have, is therefore go into all the world and about your going and about your doing, make disciples, preach the gospel. You know what? Peter, guys, forget it. I've got a nice villa for you. I want you to just kick your feet up and relax. And when you're going about, you're doing with your neighbors, you know, have little conversations maybe here or there and share your faith. But don't worry. I'm with you to the end of the age. Church, God wants to use you. Whatever that means for you, whether you're the wisest of us or the youngest of us and you're just learning. If your mute button is on, it's time to take the mute button off. How will the attitudes of others change towards faith in Christianity for the better? How will others come to know God? You will see victories, church, because God will be known, because God will use you and wants to use you. Just make yourself available to him. If you feel like you don't know anything or you're, you're not sure what to say or you're just afraid, welcome to the club. We're all in there, and I'm sure Paul was in there as well. But we need to stand up and be courageous for Christ. And he won't leave you nor forsake you. We need to press on like Paul did and win others for Christ. He won someone at the Areopagus. If we're going to share Christ with others, we will find ourselves uncomfortable at times, offended at times, hot under the collar, especially if we don't have a good response. But we've got an ace up our sleeve. The Holy Spirit will use you and guide you for the things that you're learning to make the gospel known. This, none of this is done absent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to use the things that you're learning, like with Paul, and make points of contact to effectively share the gospel. How do we reach people with the gospel? Well, first thing is love them, be a truth seeker, and ask questions. There's nothing wrong with that. If someone's going to start saying stuff to you that you don't get or understand, ask them, what do you mean by that? What do you mean Christianity is a myth? Or what do you mean Christianity is a joke? What, whatever that might be. Be gentle and respectful and gather information from them. Be a source of learning. Just learn their perspective and learn what they're about. And that goes a long way rather than trying to be defensive and try and quote scriptures and uh, trying to just get them to clean up their act. 
We don't want them to clean up the rack. We want to introduce them to Christ. So let's do that. You can have a case or an argument for your faith without being argumentative. You can give a defense for the hope that's in you without being defensive. I want to read a couple quotes here from this lady who was a former atheist and talks about her mindset as a non-believer. And certainly this is the case for many atheists who come to faith in Christ. Listen to what she says. This is Holly Ordway from her book, Not God's Type, A Rational Academic Finds a Radical Faith. Quote, My problem could not be solved by hearing a preacher asserting that Jesus loved me and wanted to save me. I didn't believe in God to begin with. And I thought the Bible was a collection of folk tales and myths, just like the stories I'd read of Zeus and Thor, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. Why should I bother to read the Bible, much less take seriously what it said about this Jesus? Continuing, the problem lay deeper. Listen to this. In my very concept of what faith was, I thought faith was by definition irrational, that it meant believing some assertion to be true for no reason. It had never occurred to me that there could be a path to find path to faith through reason, that there were arguments for God's existence and evidence for the claims of Christianity. Unquote. Did you catch that? And this is very common in the atheist community at large globally on the internet. Faith is irrational and has no evidence for it. They keep propounding that definition of faith. Faith is confident hope and reasonable hope in what we believe. We have good reasons to believe what we believe, and certainly Paul did that at Athens. What about, she said, arguments for the existence of God and the evidence for the claims of Christianity? Arguments for the existence of God are rich and abundant, and it's important, church, that you be informed about them. Alongside your personal testimony, Leibniz's cosmological argument. This is an argument that asks, why is there something rather than nothing? That's probably the most profound question a person can ask and should keep you up at night if you've never thought about it. The Kalam cosmological argument is about the beginning and the first cause of the universe. The teleological argument, these are a family of arguments that deal with design in the universe, in biology, and so forth. The argument from consciousness that the mind the mind is not created by the brain. Just think of your brain. A three to five pound gluttonous glob produces the experience that we have. It's crazy. The moral argument, objective moral values exist. If you think that there are really good things to do, sacrificial things, loving things to do, and if you believe there are absolutely abhorrent things that you should not do, you should believe that God exists and the argument for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Don't you feel smarter already <laughs> just having a list of these arguments and just knowing what they were? And in some cases, this might be all you need to get going. As I've mentioned previous before, myself, Paul Hamill, and Ryan Roder are committed and want to serve the body of Christ in our apologetic ministry called Gray Matters. And here's what you can expect at Gray Matters. Here's an acumen, an acronym or an acronym for Christ. Confident hope 
that has been reasonably investigated that gets stronger when tested. Confident hope that has been reasonably investigated that gets stronger when tested. I pray you come out. I pray if you have any questions, you email the church, they'll contact us, and we will be glad to help you out and get you on your way. Not just with apologetics, but with evangelism. I want to close with a few things. Pastor Gary's message talked about praying big. Would you ever thought, or would you think that Paul and Luke ever thought that his episode, his pit stop on his missionary journey, would have his inscription of his speech at the Areopagus? At the Areopagus, Paul was a babbler and made that place famous. Would they've ever thought of the impact? That their lives would have had in stepping out for Christ. Incredible. Final thoughts to you, church. I don't know what's going on here, but that's blazing, and I love the picture. Don't stay silent, beloved saints. Find ways to move from a private faith to an open, public, vibrant faith. Why? Because God wants to win more people into his family, and he wants to use you. Be courageous. Insults and stones are nothing compared to knowing and contending for Christ. <laughs> Look at Paul and Gary's sermon last week. Paul was in prison. Like, that guy has literally got nothing left. Only Christ. It's only through adversity do we see what we truly have. Sorry about that. Better to be criticized than ignored. Trust me, church, we want to be in conversations with people about our faith and keep it coming. One thing we don't want is to be pushed off into the corner and ignored. We need to speak up. Shine your light, church. You will see victories. The Holy Spirit wants to use you. And remember, Christ is in you. As I close here, I just want to leave you with one final thought. We've heard a lot of sermons in the last month about love, which is so important for all of us, about recalibrating hope, about character and integrity, about the name and power of Jesus, about praying big. Now there's another facet of the Christian life that we need to get involved with. Paul instructs the Corinthians, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Church, may God bless you as you go about your going. Find ways to make points of contact. God bless you. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. Cause the God I serve knows only how to triumph. 
My God will never fail. Oh, my God will never fail. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. Oh. This power in the mighty name of Jesus. Every war he wages, he will win. I'm not backing down from any giant Cause I know how this story ends Yes, I know how this story ends I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory For the battle belongs to you, Lord I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory, for the battle belongs to you, Lord. Oh, it belongs to you, Lord. You take what the enemy meant for evil, and you turn it for good. Turn it for good. You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. You turn it for good. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory, for the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory, I'm gonna see a victory, for the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory, I'm gonna see a victory, for the battle belongs to What the enemy meant for evil And you turn it for good You turn it for good You take what the enemy meant for evil And you turn it for good You turn it for good I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory for the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord.